Hello and welcome to Taking Social Stock. This is episode 13. The show is hosted by me, Andrew. And me, Heather. So being episode 13, that means we've now been doing this for three months. Quarter of a year. Quarter of a year. Over that, of course, we did our introduction episode, introduced who we were, but I thought this would be a good chance to recap that slightly. So we are a married couple who live in the Midwest. Probably have caught that if you've listened to other episodes. And the whole bend of the show is me and Heather, while we've agreed on a lot of the topics we've talked about, we do come from different educational backgrounds and we work in different, well, before the pandemic, we worked in different settings. I work in a not, or I work in a for-profit company and Heather works for a national nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Now we work about five feet apart in our home. Yeah. Still working for our same employers. Yeah. We do approach topics a lot of times from different perspectives, or we may have different insights into what's going on. So that's the gist of what taking social stock is. And now let's get into today's topic. All right. Happy, happy three-month anniversary, by the way. You too. Yeah, thanks. thanks. Today's topic, it's called, uh, the, the article is called Immigrant Woman Starts Food Pantry in Her Home to Help Undocumented Families. And of course, we'll link this. But it really drew my attention because food insecurity, lack of access to food has become, has always been a huge problem in the U.S., but it is, it's been exacerbated because of COVID. This story tells us a little bit about a woman who is helping people who could be at higher risk of food insecurity, not getting access to the very basic of needs because they are undocumented and it can be scary for them to go to a food pantry or a food bank. But a large part of that, I think, is there's a lack of knowledge. You know, these undocumented immigrants, they don't necessarily know how and where to go for resources, but in their communities, they can trust their neighbors. And I think that's definitely where this sprung out of. I think later in the story, she talks about getting up to like 175 families or something that are participating, 150 families that they're distributing food to. So yeah. it's incredible out of her out of her home. Her home's become like the, the, the people's little market, as it's called. And I think, yeah, you're right that people may not know where resources are. And people, I think, are also nervous to go to places where they would have to share their personal information. You know, I think about whenever... I was doing my social work practicum. I did that at a food bank. And my some of my responsibilities during that that time was to go to food pantries and like assess them in some way. One of the pantries I went to, they worked heavily with a particular immigrant population. And they said, this was a few years ago, they had seen numbers decline of that population because people were nervous. ICE had become a lot more aggressive during that time frame. So they were just flat out nervous to go to the food pantry itself. I would guess that was also before the Supreme Court ruled against DACA. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Well, why don't you go back a step there too? So since you have experience working around the food pantry and food bank services, kind of describe that. Because I know whenever you started doing it, I didn't know what the difference was between a food pantry, a food bank. So can you kind of describe that a little bit? Yeah, a food bank, a, f- a food bank in itself distributes food to food pantries, and they might also distribute food to individuals in need themselves. Where I was, though, I would say that my experience there was that it was the food pantries who came to the food bank, 
got larger distributions of food to then take back to the community pantry. It could be in a house of worship. It could be in a community center, a school, uh, different places. They would take this larger collection of food to the food pantry to then better serve people in their closer neighborhood communities. Yeah, so kind of a way to distribute it. So they're kind yes. of like the hub in a lot yeah, of ways. Yeah, distribution center, yes. Of course, a lot of people dealing with food insecurity may not have reliable transportation yes. or things like that. So it needs to be distributed closer to them. Yep. One thing also I thought of with this, it's kind of vaguely related, but if anyone out there has watched Mr. Beast, famous YouTuber, he did a drive at the beginning of the pandemic where he donated like a million dollars worth of food to a food bank. Now, what he did, though, is he went into his local grocery store and he bought all the food, put it in a big truck and shipped it over. I was watching something else recently and you know, like, what's the best way to give to a food pantry? And they said, well, give them the money. Yep. Because for, I, actually, I think it was a stream that AOC was on. Uh, yeah. And she said, yeah, give it directly to the food banks because they can buy like it may cost you a dollar to buy a can of beans. They can get four for that mm -hmm. same dollar. Yep. They have partnerships with. Uh, whether it's the government or other entities, yeah. Yeah, so that's something I would have never thought of, but good to know, good way to make your donations actually go further is to figure out the most effective resource to put it into. Yeah, I'm just curious about this. Mr. Beast, is that the one who like, he'll stay underwater for hours on end, that guy? Yeah, well, I mean, he, he does some cool he stuff. That's yeah. what he titles the videos. A lot of those challenges are a little, little cheesy, but yeah, he does like all these things like, I will do this for 24 hours, do that. And then the other part of his channel is giving away big chunks of money. Yeah. So giving away a million dollars to a food pantry was... That's huge. That's amazing. Yeah. So before we go a little further too, I wanted to jump in because another thing I... You know, this isn't a topic that comes up in my line of work. We deal with undocumented workers in a way. It's kind of a fringe thing that we don't think about a whole mm -hmm. lot. So what exactly is meant when someone says an, an undocumented worker? Yeah, or undocumented or person. Immigrant, yeah. Okay. It means that they are not recognized by the government as being here legally, meaning that they could be deported to whatever country of origin they live in. And that could be what a lot of people think of it is people who are maybe anti-undocumented Americans or people is they have a stereotype, a trope in their mind. It can also be people who have been here since they were a baby. They had didn't get documentation. We're the only country they know. And then they're plopped back into their country because they don't have that formal paperwork that says that they're a citizen. So the shorthand is it's a nicer to say people who are here without legal, aren't here legally. Yes. And of course, the United States is founded on immigration. Yeah. So that's, it has a negative tinge because of politics, I think now, where I mentioned this briefly in a prior episode, I believe, but more people is not a bad thing in the US. More people actually is like the key to capitalism. It makes it work even better. It's not a negative thing in my opinion. Now, looking at illegal immigrants or undocumented immigrants, it's been a hot topic issue for the last couple of years because, well, I guess not just couple, but since Obama was in office, mm -hmm. we had dreamers and all these different kinds of things coming up into the press. If you look back, I saw an article by, who is this by? Pew Research Center. So just kind of some key findings about U.S. immigrants. 
well, we're close to the highest percentage share of the U.S. population that is immigrants, period, right now, but it's not the highest. Back in 1890s, we're at about 15% of the population was immigrants. That includes documented and undocumented, which I don't know what the documentation process was 100 mm-hmm. years ago. And now we're at about 14%, and that includes, again, both. Of that 14%, only about 10 million to 12 million are undocumented immigrants. And 14% of the 400-ish million we have here is 50-ish million people? Exactly. So okay, about yeah. about 40 million, 35 to 40 million that are have been here or legalized, naturalized, whatever the case may be, and then the 10 to 12 million undocumented. Mm-hmm. Of those, this is what I found really interesting. One of the key like stigmas, I guess, against undocumented workers is like they don't contribute. You know, mm-hmm. they just reap the benefits. About seven or fifty to seventy-five percent of undocumented workers pay federal income taxes. Yeah. Though they're not going to get anything from that yep. because they won't qualify as an undocumented worker. So I th- found that really interesting. That we're actually there's a lot of tax being paid out by this population that's not, you know, doesn't come back to them. Yeah. Unless they get naturalized. They're giving, but they're not getting. Yeah. Yeah. And just one other deviation. People want to think like, do the process, become a citizen. Like, why not just do that? It's extremely expensive. Mm -hmm. This article, I think, mentioned, not your article, but the um, peer research. It's like $750 to file to get approved. But that's not the only cost. In general, it costs like five to $10,000 to become a citizen. So it's it's not cheap. Five to $10,000 is a lot for someone who has a regular day job, went to college. That's a lot of money for the that's average person. For someone who's an undocumented worker where employment is tougher, that's a huge amount of money. It's massive. We have a friend who their significant other lives in a different country where they look like we do, white, right? Like it's not the stereotype of what people who are anti-undocumented people think of. And it it would be so incredibly difficult, expensive, and time-consuming to get him here to be a naturalized citizen. It's it's just the hoops people have to jump through is tremendous, complex, and unlike, I think, what a lot of people think it looks like to become a documented citizen. Yeah. So that's like a, a high-level look at what what an undocumented citizen or immigrant is and kind of what their situation is. So going back to the food insecurity, mm-hmm. obviously COVID exasperates that and food pantries are already at their limit in a lot of areas because just population in general yeah. is lacking employment. If you're an undocumented worker, employment becomes even more challenging. And a lot of these, the population of undocumented immigrants are in the West and South from what I've seen. I know California, I don't know if it goes into it in your article, they passed some different acts or some relief funds to give out to the undocumented immigrants, but there's like three and a half million in California alone. Yeah. And it's uh, what you took from the article is different than what my intention was in sharing it, which is good. My, what I really liked about the article is it highlights an individual who 
a lot of people want to claim the this she she stands in for a population that a lot of people want to claim aren't doing anything, aren't being helpful. And her opening her home, she doesn't even have a kitchen table that can be used anymore because it's covered in food. So many people are coming day in and day out to get food because to your point, they trust her. They know her as part of the the community, but it shows how how difficult of a situation people are in and how people are contributing who we don't learn a ton about her, but it doesn't seem like she has an unending well of financial resources that she continues to give and give and give um, because the people that are coming to her, they don't, for whatever reason, they don't feel safe or like they can go elsewhere to get what they need. Yeah, along with that. So this other article I kind of mentioned about the funds in California. Let me pull it up real quick because they go into that actually. So I think it is, yeah, New California Relief Program for Undocumented Overwhelmed by Demand. This is also from NPR. And it was an article that came out in May. So this is before the prolonged effects of the pandemic have been felt. You know, they were, things were tough in May, but it's just continued. And California has been on and off of restrictions the whole time. Yeah. So the thing they point out is they had this like, I think it was like $2 million set aside. People could collect 500 per adult or $1,000 per family max. But no one was showing up, like literally no one showed up to the facilities to collect the money. Okay. Because they were afraid that they might get arrested or what might happen if they go. Yeah, it could look like a trap. And even, so they had phone lines set up where people could call in to get relief. But even then a lot of people were scared to give even their last names because they didn't know, you know, they didn't know what was going on. So, of course, there's that trust issue. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. And that is so sad. But it also, it doesn't shock me because of that experience that I had when I was at that food pantry during my practicum. I was shocked and saddened then because I'd never considered, thought that that being a thing, that people would forego food. Totally makes sense why they would. But forego food, how bad does it have to be that you're going to not feed your family because the alternative is that you're potentially would have to go somewhere that it's not safe for you to be at. I, at least my perception as someone who's never really been to a food pantry is you just show up and you get food. Like they don't really need an ID or anything, right? This particular one, they collected, um, they collected demographic information because as a pantry, they are sometimes going to be a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. So to communicate who they're serving, how they're serving, where I was, the the food bank that I was at, they did expect some sort of data collection from the pantry, so the food pantry, the food bank itself, could continue to get more funding to say, here's who we're serving, here's what the demographics are. In the particular situation I was in, I think their solution was they started collecting the data on a different color card because whatever color card it was that they used to get the information of the participants when they were coming through the door was a similar color card that that was coded as danger to them Mm -hmm. of being potentially deported weird yeah i know you would have never thought of that yep this story though you're talking about california this story of this woman happens in connecticut i like also that her story is intriguing but that it's in this state that a lot of people I don't think of. How many people do you think of if you're talking to them and you're like, let's talk about food insecurity in Connecticut, right? Like that's just not something that we tend to think about, I think. 
No, but of course, when you mention any northeastern state, I immediately think that there are tons of problems outside of the the big cities you mm-hmm. know of. You know, that's where you hear of the most like uh, like heroin issues and things like this. So there's a lot, mm. of, a lot of issues that go on in those communities because they were built up as one reason or another. These towns grew to prominence, and then that slipped away as the population moved to the the bigger business centers that are very close by. Yeah. So that that's what I think of. But yeah, when it comes to undocumented populations and immigrants in these cities, I don't think of it as much, though it makes sense because yeah. you still any kind of coastal area. You have a lot of it here in the Midwest. There's plenty of undocumented immigrants in the Midwest, and they form little communities, mm-hmm. and they stay very tight-knit. I know when I was growing up, my friend's mom had a basement apartment, and there was like eight different undocumented immigrants living in her basement. At and one they, time. At one time, yeah. and they would cycle in and out. Some of them would leave, go back to Mexico, where they were from, yeah, or uh, you know, some stayed for quite a while. A lot of them worked at the same employers who were willing, but that was in the middle of nowhere yeah. basically way back and there in the was day this, yeah there was this little population right there and you know they weren't the only ones i got to know some of the other groups mm-hmm. by living you know by being at my friend's house all the time and those groups interacting yeah yeah it's yeah it's a lot so you kind of went into the pew research information pretty heavily what what else stuck out to you that felt like learning or that that you want to share sure so when the topic came up i read that article and it's Great story what this lady is doing, but I realize it's not an area I pay a lot of attention to. I know you've worked in a food uh, food bank or was it a pantry? It was through a food bank, but I went to pantries. So yes. you're helping with a food bank, helping pantries through them. Yes. Okay. So again, like I don't, I don't know a lot of that aspect and obviously food insecurity is a huge thing. So I just decided to kind of look up some of the basic information so I knew something about the topic. The other thing I looked at was Feeding America's website. Mm-hmm. Obviously, well-known yes. organization. So, you know, they give some basic stats and they're, you know, their stats are going to favor them as an organization to show that there's a problem. Like yeah. all nonprofits, Like yeah. all nonprofits. Yeah. They got to show that there's a need for what they do. Yes. But of course, the numbers they're making can't be that far off. You know, on their first page, says, due to the pandemic, 50 million people may face hunger in the U.S. during 2020. More than 17 million are children. And that made me think, well, what exactly does food insecurity mean? Because that's become, I think, more of a term in the last five, 10 years, mm-hmm. at least to me. And well, I'll let you define it because I had to look it up to make oh, sure I knew. Oh, man. You stressed me out. I was like, don't ask me this because I can't give you a textbook definition. Okay. Basically, it's just what I don't want to say just. It means that somebody doesn't have consistent access to nutritious food. Yeah. That's the basics of yeah. what they say. I think they just say like they may experience hunger mm-hmm. or unreliable access to yeah. food a lot of people might immediately think oh yeah that's me then i've i've been hungry before but that's not exactly what they're saying they're saying like a real need for food you know going more than just skipping a meal but inconsistent meals so i you know i had to look that up and seeing that it was you know 50 million during the pandemic but i think on average they say it's like 40 million or something so it's it's a huge part of the population one in nine americans is their like key statistic mm-hmm. will face food insecurity throughout any given year and in some ways it's you look at that number and you think well yeah that makes sense but i look around at my family circles mm-hmm. things and i'm like well it's none of them at least that i know that of, you know of yeah right and that just means there's a large population that i don't know that is facing you know these challenges I think that you 
you may never know the name of people you know who who have our are right now or will experience food insecurity, but you know them. It's a jarring number to think about. So if we walked outside our front door, we did a spin in a circle and tossed a rock, it's possible in our neighborhood that there's somebody within throwing distance who their belly have been chronically grumbling for a while or have at some point in their life. Yeah, it's it's not just a problem where people people have, I think, another image of what does it look like to be, air quotes, poor to the point where you open your fridge or your pantry and there's nothing in there. I think that looks a lot different of what the people look like look a lot different than the vision we might have in our heads. Sure. And I I don't doubt that. Growing up, I grew up with this, basically a single parent. Mm-hmm. We had times where we probably relied on government assistance that I didn't know about as a child. I know my mom really wanted to avoid that as much as she could. She wanted to kind of the uh, American thing, pull herself up by her bootstraps, mm-hmm. which kind of flawed logic because if she was taking the assistance that's available, she could make the rest of her money go further to accomplish other things. Like, you know, I don't know what aspiration she had, but that could have helped her uh, or me. <laughs> but I don't think any of my friends, for the most part, realized what my household situation was. And so, of course, that's the same way in any neighborhood. You don't know which one of your friends groups is really struggling financially. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to the undocumented workers and immigrants, this time with the pandemics, you know, it's always challenging in that community because work and safety is not a given. Yep. But my point being is during the pandemic, there's fewer jobs that are just available. So those jobs that are available, it's going to be tougher to land. I tend to think of this in as a system level issue. So what are the the dots that connect when somebody goes hungry? What is that what does that look like for people? Well, it means that people are going to be more agitated. It means that people, adults, are more likely to feel frustration and maybe struggle to communicate that in a healthy way because it's incredibly defeating. You know, think, thinking about like putting ourselves in a position, if we couldn't afford to feed ourselves, that wreaks havoc on you emotionally, mentally, you're already hungry, weak, trying to, if you're trying to find a job or trying to work your job. It's been a while since I've looked at the studies, but abuses, domestic violence, different types of abuses, verbal abuse goes up when people don't have access to food. So there's so much that happens when people can't get food in their bellies. Food is like the last thing you stop paying for. Mm-hmm. So you, you no longer have your other have your other escapes. There's going to be more confrontation and, and family units. Thankfully, we are, there are people like this woman. So last week, everyone was busy. At least uh, a lot of people were busy feasting on their Thanksgiving dinners. So hopefully this is something to think about as we head into Christmas. If you have a chance, check out the article and see if there's any way that maybe if you want to help out your community, find out who your local food bank or food pantries are and what needs they might have. But I think that'll do it for us this week. Unless you had anything else, Heather? No, that was good. All right. Well, thank you for listening. This has been episode 13. If you have any questions, email us at takingsocialstock at gmail.com. Otherwise, we'll see you next week.